Nate, you're not in a tournament, but you are in Vegas and you're there for work. So what are you doing in Las Vegas? You know, it's all a big ambiguity at this point. <laughs> it's all kind of... So do you feel like you're a Vegas aficionado now? Like, have you moved outside of the Strip at all? Or is it just kind of Oh, yeah, like... no, for sure. I, okay. I know, yeah, I know a fair bit about Vegas, I'd say. Oh, nice. yeah, he's definitely a regular in the kind of, you know, off the Strip, seedier parts of town. <laughs> seedier... Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Drew. President Biden's $2 trillion social spending and climate change agenda is in its most tenuous position yet after a year of stops and starts. On Sunday, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin announced in a TV interview that he will not support the Build Back Better plan. Of course, Democrats' slim majority in the Senate means nothing passes without the support of every single Democratic senator. It was apparently a surprise to the White House and other leaders in the party. So today, we're going to take a look at Manchin's rationale and where Democrats might go from here. We're also going to take a look back at the year that was. We'll try to pinpoint the most consequential political events of 2021 and discuss how our understanding of American politics was challenged. And of course, we'll also ask our favorite question, good use of polling or bad use of polling, today's example suggests that it is young Americans, not older Americans, who are least supportive of President Joe Biden currently. And here with me to do that is Editor-in-Chief Nate Silver. Hey, Nate. Hey, everybody. Also here with us is Managing Editor Micah Cohen. Hey, Micah. Hello, Galen. Hello, everyone. And Politics Editor Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, y'all. So we have a show full of high-level 538 editors today. I assume that means that our analysis is going to be absolutely top-notch. Well stated. (laughs) Well considered. I mean, you wouldn't expect anything less. Oh, see, I was going to (laughs) disagree. I was going to say. That's what we want. We want disagreement. It's true. I'm a better editor than I am a writer because editors, like, you get the good analysis to work with, then you just make it better. I'm not as good at, you know, coming up with actual smart things to say. Micah, that is far too humble. But luckily, it's like the big picture stuff for today. I feel like that plays to editor's strength, right, Micah? That's true. You don't actually have to say anything insightful. You just kind of like make broad statements. Yeah. Okay. Well, Keep listening, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Stick stick with us. And how's everyone doing? It's, you know, the holidays have kind of begun. The calendar is a little weird this year, so it's really spread out over almost two weeks, I guess. Everyone in the holiday mood? Not yet. (laughs) Nate, why not? (laughs) Think that'll change, Nate? (laughs) I just haven't mentally transitioned to holiday mode yet. I will soon. It does have something to do with the weather and being in Las Vegas? It's f***ing cold, actually, in Las Vegas. I brought, like, one long sleeve shirt, being a f***ing idiot. And uh, (laughs) I brought, like, more than one long sleeve shirt, but, like, one, like, sweatshirt. No, it's plenty wintry here, actually. All right, well, then maybe you'll be in the holiday spirit before too long. Nate coming in spicy to start the podcast. I mean, what else would we expect? That's true. So let's dive in with our favorite question. Last week, The Economist published a piece titled Young Americans Are Turning on Joe Biden. And it featured a chart showing that from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, people under the age of 30 went from being Biden's most supportive group to his least supportive group. So in January, Biden had a plus 30 net approval amongst people under 30, and it is now net negative 21, according to polling from The Economist and YouGov. So that's a whopping more than 50-point reversal. Adults aged 30 to 44, also soured on the president significantly, but there was much less change amongst those 45 and older. His approval with that group began a little bit better than break even and is now around net negative six. The article frames the loss of support amongst young people as an existential risk for Democrats. They write, quote, America's left depends on the support of young people. That, quote, Mr. Biden's failure to impress the young now threatens his presidency. And, quote, if this trend persists, the Democrats will face severe challenges in next year's midterm elections. So what do we think of how The Economist has broken down presidential approval among the electorate by age and set the stakes for Democrats? In other words, is this a good use of polling or bad use of polling? Sarah, kick us off. 
Oh, okay. I, I think I might have a controversial take on this. I thought it was pretty bad. And Ooh. I was surprised by this finding because in the lead up to the 2020 election, a story we had worked on was what does Biden's support look like with young voters? And what we found is it wasn't that different than Clinton's. He was not doing poorly, but it was also kind of meh. It was just fine, right? Moreover, I think the way that they attributed Biden and other Democrats' victories to younger voters just felt off. You know, per Pew's 2020 validated voter survey, they found that voters under the age of 30 made up 15% of the electorate. So without that context, it felt like we were zooming in on one section saying this was super important, all of the Democrats' stakes are held to it, and that just felt off to me. So I say bad. Ooh, okay. I'll be honest, I kind of thought people were going to like this use of polling. Does anyone have a different opinion? I'm on the mostly bad side, too. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I mean, there are a couple of issues. One is that I would like to see some attempt to verify this through other polls. Because in general, like, age is not a huge determinant of support on its own. It might be a proxy for something else, or it might reflect some potential flaw in how this one particular survey is reaching respondents, or it might reflect to some degree sample size issues, although The Economist does, like, polling very often. There shouldn't be a lot of sample size issues, but you never know, right? But, like, if you run trends on 20 different demographic groups, you can kind of fish around and and find a story in one or two of them. I think there's, like, not really a clear thesis. So that's, that's already a bunch of issues, right? Number two is the framing. I mean, young people don't vote as much as old people. So f*** young people, right? That's the first people I want to lose, I premise this a positive for Biden. You know, the young people, they're not going to turn out anyway, right? So at least he's holding his own among older people who are going to vote in the midterm. That might mean that he's underrated by approval rating polls. Interesting. And they're flaky, so they'll, they'll come back by 2024 anyway. No, I'm just saying, like, if you're, again, looking at all these different demographic groups between race and gender and age and whatever else, you can always find some trend. Like, I'd be much more concerned among Democrats if I saw a decline in support among Hispanic voters, because young people are, are less politically engaged. They probably bounce around a lot more. But of those people who are politically engaged, I want to see that breakout, for example. I just don't think there's much of like a real explanation or hypothesis here. It's kind of fishing around for random explanations for perhaps somewhat random swings in the polls, in one poll, not just all the polls, but like in their poll. I should say, I was surprised by this polling. So I went and looked up another recent presidential approval poll, this one from Marist, to see if it mimicked their findings at all. And in the most recent Marist poll from December of 2021, under 45 for Biden, 38% approval, 53% disapproval. 45 or older, 46% approval, 49% disapproval. They break it down even further, you know, by Gen Z, millennial, and so on. And it pretty much tracks with actually what The Economist and YouGov found, which is that Gen Z and millennials are the least supportive of the president. And as you get older, the silent generation and the greatest generation, over 74 actually, are the most supportive of the president. So 50% approve and 41% disapprove. First of all, I do think if you're going to like make a whole thesis around this, then you should go ahead and take the half a day it would take to look at all the polls, not just the Marist and the YouGov poll, and confirm that. I don't think they did that, mm-hmm. right? They're like skipping a step. Like, let's say this is a somewhat robust trend, even if a little bit exaggerated by their poll, right? They're kind of going like, well, young people are souring on Biden. That's bad for Democrats. Again, I don't think it's actually necessarily as bad as if older people were souring on mm-hmm. Biden. But, you, I mean, what's the why? Maybe the why is that young people have been really f***ed over by inflation or really f***ed over by, like, COVID restrictions or whatever else. But, like, that's where the actual, like, journalism part comes in. They're kind of skipping straight to, like, the horse race part with conclusions I think actually don't really follow from the actual electoral standpoint, don't necessarily follow through anyway. So, I don't know. I, I want to know, like, the why. And if you have a why, then I buy the what more, you know, <laughs> an explanation for why this is occurring. All right, Micah, how do you come down on this? It really comes down to, like, what do you want out of this economist piece. Because on the one hand, I thought it was a fine use of polling in the sense of like, they saw this thing in their poll and they're putting it on their website and saying, hey, here's a thing we found in our poll. That seems fine. It's a good poll. It's well-conducted, blah, 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 blah. 
I did look at like some other polling. Ipsos, for example, also shows Ipsos breaks it out by 18 to 39 year olds and then 40 and older. And Ipsos shows Biden's approval sinking to 46 percent, disapproval 49 percent among 18 to 39 year olds, 40 and older. It's 48 percent approve, 50 percent. So like not quite as exaggerated as the Economist YouGov data, but like whatever, a similar, more muted trend line. I do agree with Nate and Sarah, though, where I think this piece gets into trouble is in what it does with that trend line, where it's a, all of a sudden it's like Democrats are in, in big trouble. Well, as Nate says, we're like skipping a few steps there. The piece does like make some attempt at ascribing a why. I mean, it's a very short piece, but, you know, in the deck, it says without the threat of Donald Trump, the president's policies are coming under increasing scrutiny. Okay, but to Nate's point, by the time we reach 2022 and then 2024, you're back in that choice mindset, voters are, right, rather than just a simple referendum on the president. The piece also makes mention of, like, younger voters, according to polling, really care about climate, really care about health care, and the president hasn't really done much there so they sort of just imply that's the cause, right? They sort of say, like, Biden's numbers have dropped among young people. Polling also shows young people care about X, Y, and Z, and they're kind of connecting those two. And I don't think they've really done the work to connect those two. So I don't know. I was just like, uh, hey, this was interesting. What's up with this? I think it's a perfectly good use of polling as, like, a here's a big theory that explains this really concerning trend. I think it's a bad use of polling. So all of you have mentioned that there's a little bit of a problem with the why here. And as you said, Micah, they mentioned climate, they mentioned healthcare. They also go on to say, quote, younger Americans care more about civil rights and abortion and may be energized by recent Supreme Court rulings on the latter. Others are angry about student loan debt and Mr. Biden's unfulfilled promise to cancel at least 10,000 owed by every borrower. Of course, about a third of people in the United States graduate from four-year colleges anyway. There's a lot going on here in terms of the why. How do you test all of this? Do we have any sense of what the why might be? Nate, you mentioned that it could be frustration with COVID restrictions or inflation or what have you. Or inflation or the job market or just general vague notions that Joe Biden would kind of magically return us to normalcy, which hasn't happened, right? Like, I'm very suspicious that young people have all these kind of, I mean, they're writing like the young people are thinking are the people in their social networks. Right, like very progressive people who feel that Biden is not progressive enough. Right. I'm, I'm highly suspicious of that conclusion and highly suspicious that like very many young people care about build back better, not having passed yet, as opposed to people who were having a difficult year. And maybe people who think that Biden is kind of out of touch. And because young people are less politically engaged than older people. I mean, journalists in general also overrate how attuned most older voters are to most political happenings, but like probably even more so for younger people. And because the people writing this are younger people, they probably don't realize how non-representative their networks are. Actually, this is like one of the first things I learned working with Nate that, that Nate said to me is like, Biden's numbers overall have dropped. And so when you see an overall trend line, you're going to see it show up in almost every group. And so your starting assumption for why Biden's numbers have deteriorated among young people probably should be, well, for the same reasons they've gone down for everyone else. It's been a really tough year, right? COVID's still going, inflation, all the things Nate just mentioned. Are there unique reasons why Biden's numbers have gone down more among young people? Well, first of all, we're not really ready to say they have gone more among young people. And even if they have, they were better among young people to start. So they had more room to drop. So maybe it's just like reversion to the mean. Yeah. The one piece of information I think that's kind of missing from this article and where they would have behooved themselves to like push more to include it is I was looking, I was thinking about this poll in the context of a midterm election. And so in 2018, which was already like historically high turnout for a midterm, there was a huge increase in the percentage of younger people who turned out to vote. It was 20% in 2014, 
2018. You know, that's a 79% point jump. And so, you know, I do think The Economist is right to kind of question, well, could it be that maybe there's an enthusiasm problem among Democrats? But it wasn't packaged as that. It didn't look at how other age groups stacked up on the question of enthusiasm and whether that was, you know, to be expected in a midterm year as well. And I would have liked to see that be pushed more, honestly, more than any one issue, because I do think it's hard to distill like, okay, it's just climate change. That's why younger voters are turning on Biden. I think it would have been better to kind of see this overall enthusiasm. So we haven't really mentioned the age of the president. Of course, Joe Biden is the oldest person to ever be inaugurated to a first term. We see that in other political questions and in the ways that people vote, people sometimes share an affinity for the candidates that are most like them. You know, for example, we see that when somebody has a Hispanic name on a ballot, they are more likely to get support from Hispanic voters. We see people play into identity politics all kinds of ways. Trump did it, et cetera. You can go on and on. Is age one of those? You know, like, are older people going to have more of an affinity for Joe Biden because he's closer to them in age and younger people feel more alienated by him because he's far away from them in age? Bernie Sanders did well among the youth. Yeah. 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 So it's not about age per se, but I mean, Joe Biden is kind of like an old timey politician. He's very traditional in how he go about things. You know, he's not hip. He's an old kind of wheeler dealer type who's been around for a long time. And maybe young people are less sympathetic than older people to, like, age-related foibles, whether they're exaggerated by the media or not. Joe's aviators didn't do it for you, Nate? I'm not. I'm right in the middle age. I'm 43. So <laughs> okay. I'm, okay, wrong demographic. I'm, My apologies. Ba- I'm balanced here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was curious, though. This is not rooted in data as much as kind of a conventional wisdom point of view. As you age, you kind of are shocked by less, care about less. So I do wonder to what extent what we're seeing with older voters, not as much of a drop as like, of course, Democrats didn't get X, Y, Z done, whereas maybe younger voters are more disillusioned by that. It might be. Or as Nate said, maybe it's about sort of how tuned in you are. So older voters are more tuned in. And so to your point, Sarah, not only have seen more, but recall more. I will note, just as a side note to Gail and your point about Biden's age, the economists headlined their chart on this not aging well, which I thought was uh, maybe a little too on the nose. One question I have here as we wrap up is that we haven't seen similarly that a bunch of young people are now identifying as Republicans or something like that. So the fact that they may still lean towards the Democratic Party but not approve of Biden would fly in the face of this trend that we see of high levels of partisanship and polarization. And that, you know, like, if you identify more with the left, you're going to approve of the president from the Democratic Party and vice versa. So are young people just less partisan? Because on the flip side, old people may be pretty set into their partisan ways and therefore just have more loyalty to a president from their party. They are less partisan in the sense of being less likely to identify with one political party. I mean, that's the context that's missing from this is, do young people swing around more in general than older people? If so, if there's been a fairly substantial drop in Biden's approval rating, you'd expect that to have occurred among swingier demographics like young people. It would also mean that if there's a rebound, it would rebound more among young people. Mm. It's a quick and dirty article I don't think there's anything wrong with like saying, oh, here's a funny thing we saw in our polling, right? The problem is like putting this big headline on it and treating it like it's a big deal without doing this extra homework or contextualization. That's the thing. Just before we wrap, I do want to say I'm actually a big fan of the, hey, here's a chart and 50 words articles. I love those articles and I love those charts. But you just have to be really careful with how you sell them and advertise them because you can get yourself in a lot of trouble. There's a reason most articles are longer than 50 words, and it's because most news stories take more than 50 words to give enough context and caveats and, and research and reporting. All right. Well, it sounds like this is a trend we can continue to watch and see if we see further affirmation of it or if things, you know, turn around, bounce back for the president. But let's move on and talk about Joe Manchin and the Build Back Better plan. But first... Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Senator Joe Manchin went on Fox News on Sunday to announce that he will not support the Build Back Better plan. Take a listen to what he said. This is a no on this legislation. I have tried everything I know to do, and uh, the president has worked diligently. He's been wonderful to work with. He knows I've had concerns and, and, and the problems I've had. And, and, you know, the thing that we should all be is directing our attention towards the variant, the COVID that we have coming back at us in so many different aspects and different ways. It's affecting our lives again. Uh, we have inflation that basically could harm, really harm a lot of Americans, and especially those who are, are most needy and having a hard time struggling right now. All right. There is plenty of reporting and speculation on what Manchin's goal is with this interview. What do you understand it to be, Micah? I think Manchin is practicing politics, which everyone in Congress and the White House has been doing this whole time. I just think that's the right place to start here. And whatever reasons he's giving on policy, I think are secondary to where he thinks the politics of this are for himself and his home state. And his goal is to distance himself from the bill and from Biden. Right. Yeah, no, I've read some pieces that are like, could this be Manchin trying to one-up his positioning? It's like, his positioning was already really good. You know, this bill does not pass without Manchin behind it. And so it's hard for me to see that kind of political maneuver from him being baked into this. But I think as Micah is getting at, you know, it's just he's looking at the political realities of his home state, West Virginia, that voted for Trump by more than 40 points. And he's not going to back a bill of this scale. And the way in which he did it also kind of suggests to me that it's hard to see how this helps his standing in trying to continue to have productive conversations on this moving forward. The fact that he did it on Fox News, I think, is a tip off that this is mostly about politics and not about leverage in the negotiations. As Sarah said, he already had plenty of leverage. But since he did it on Fox News, you saw a pretty blistering statement from that's like such a political reporter. It's been everywhere. To use. Yeah. <laughs> blistering. You saw, clearly, I've been reading <laughs> a lot painful. of these articles. Sounds painful. <laughs> it, a blistering statement from White House press secretary. No, but the statement more aggressively went after Manchin than the White House has to date. They've been very kind of kids glove with Manchin. Well, they basically said he went back on his word, yeah. saying you lied. Exactly. Yeah, they called him a liar without saying that. Yeah. Right. And then in the immediate wake of all this, the Huffington Post came out with an article that I'll just read the headline. The headline is Joe Manchin privately told colleagues parents use child tax credit money on drugs. So the source or sources in here seem to be anonymous, either fellow <laughs> senators or people in Congress. So now Democrats are going after Manchin. So it's sort of like I think I and, and we threw a lot of cold water on the like Dems in disarray narrative that has popped up over the last few months. And I'm not even willing to use that hashtag now, Dems in disarray. But if you want to see something a little bit closer to Dems in disarray, that's where we are now, where there's like anonymously sourced attacks on a senator and the White House is issuing these statements, you know. And Manchin's going on Fox News. Yeah, Dems are angry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so... If Dems are not in disarray, are you saying that you think this is not the end of the Build Back Better plan and instead is just another stop along the way to Democrats eventually passing some kind of social spending and climate bill? No, to be clear, this is definitely like disarrayed. <laughs> it's definitely possible that they come back and pass something that is somehow related to the Build Back Better plan. There's a lot of talk now, for example, on like what Manchin says he wants is fewer programs that don't sunset, fewer programs that last longer. Maybe that's what they'll pass. 
So I don't think it's like the end end of all these negotiations. This isn't really too much of a surprise. Manchin's yeah. been saying for a long time that he thinks the bill is too much. He doesn't like the fact that you have a bunch of short-term programs that phase out. He would like to pare it down, right? And Democrats haven't really made too much progress in front of the scenes on those complaints. Maybe they have behind the scenes. I mean, I would describe Manchin as someone who is pretty indifferent toward this. When you're indifferent, you actually kind of have a lot of leverage. You can walk away from the table. And so I think that's kind of like why he frustrates progressives that he's kind of, he can walk away from it, right? right. <laughs> and you have very little power over someone who has that indifference. Um, and they probably find it really frustrating given how important progressives think some of these priorities are. But like, it's not really a clean break from what was happening previously. You know, he was already kind of at arm's length from the current versions of the bill. And I guess the Biden White House felt very betrayed by this. I mean, I don't know how mature, frankly, their reaction was. But he's also not totally shutting the door to like, hey, do what I ask, trim this thing down, fewer gimmicks and how it's paid for, right? And then we can talk. Probably have to have a different name at this point, you know, build back mediocrely or something, or I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not really that significant a change necessarily if you're actually kind of like reading the, the tea leaves. I thought the most interesting thing was how bridge-burning-ish this Biden statement was. Well, I don't know. I thought Manchin gave them a pretty big F you by going on Fox News. Yeah. Also, his aides called the White House 30 minutes ahead of time, and then they like scrambled to try to call Manchin, and he refused the call. I mean, I hear your point, Nate, that like Manchin's stance on this is not surprising, but I think the way he handled it is, and I'm not saying that the White House then should have like poured more kerosene on the fire, which is what they did, but it's just like he has an equal part in this. And I think it's like not only are you saying like he essentially can walk away from this as he did, but I think there's a deep resentment that it's like the White House has spent 12 months courting them. They went on his houseboat. They've taken him out to Delaware. And then he does this. And so I think it's like that dual track of people being like, why, you know, I mean, this is what Charlemagne the God was telling Kamala Harris on their most recent interview, like, who's the president, Joe Manchin or Joe Biden? And, you know, she got flustered by that because, yes, it's Joe Biden. But is it? I think Manchin is, you know, kind of single-handedly determining what gets through Congress and what doesn't. I mean, it's, it's hard to charm somebody in Delaware. I know they have some nice beaches, but like, <laughs> Rehoboth is lovely. Is not that, not that. Should have been Camp okay, David. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> You've all suggested to some extent that this is not truly the end of at least some of these policy proposals from Democrats. Where do they go from here? If you listen to Manchin's actual words, it sounds like he's suggesting that they instead focus on COVID slash Omicron and inflation. Are they now instead going to start crafting a bill that addresses other COVID or inflation-related issues? Or is that more just like, okay, that's my reason for pouring cold water on this now, but we can come back to the table and talk about just a pared-down version in the future. I guess Schumer kind of said what they're going to do, which is force Manchin and Cinema to vote on all of these things come January. Is that actually what's going to happen? Well, we'll see. We'll make you vote. Yeah. Like, I don't understand yeah. what kind of no. threat they well, These things are so popular— that will force you to like, I mean, I think part of the issue is that the average person on the street has no idea what Build Back Better is, right? If you look at internet search traffic for Build Back Better, it's very low as compared to with the last Democratic president trying to pass Obamacare. That's actually something that normal people would talk about one another on the street. That's like a thing that people cared about deeply. And here, I mean, here everyone's just kind of indifferent except for like progressive activists. And Joe Manchin doesn't really care what progressive activists think. And doesn't have electoral incentive to either. I mean, his incentives, if anything, are to buck Biden. So does this give Democrats the opportunity to just break out one or two popular policies and say, OK, this is our climate change or this is our environment bill or this is our child tax credit bill? If I had a bet on what would happen, and I don't know that I would because I'm not all that confident I know what will happen, mostly because as we've been talking about, it does seem like both sides started burning the bridge here. I'm not sure the bridge is burnt, but both sides were lighting their side of it on fire. I do think this idea of like fewer provisions, longer term, funded for a longer time 
is maybe the like last remaining path for the build back, fill in the blank bill, you know, whatever we end up calling this thing. There was talk, remember, like a week ago, maybe that Democrats would shift to voting rights. But I, I think all that kind of like, oh, we should actually be focused on this. I think that stuff is BS. Congress can do a lot of things at the same time, at least theoretically. But if there is a path forward for what was once the Build Back Better bill, I think they'll pick a few provisions and pass them. And again, it's like a colleague asked a very reasonable question, which is, why doesn't Biden have more sway over Manchin and the mansions of Congress? And it's exactly what Nate says, like any support a Democratic president gets out of a senator from West Virginia is basically a a win because the replacement level senator from West Virginia is a Republican and you're getting no support there. Uh, So I think if Build Bick Better is going to move forward, it's basically just going to move forward as whatever Manchin wants. And as Nate says, Manchin, unlike Cinema at Times, has been pretty clear what he wants, which is just a few programs that last 10 years or whatever the budgeting period is. Yeah, the math of the few programs is really complicated, though, because that's what Manchin's been arguing, right? It's like Democrats are trying to do too much. The true cost of this is closer to what the Congressional Budget Office had estimated, which was far over the $1.7 trillion price tag. And so then it becomes a question for Democrats of, well, what do we cut from it? And if we do that, is it really still a plan then that's tackling the environment, that's helping families? And the answer to that is probably not. The second point, though, is that there are real deadlines here, and that is like the child tax credit is expiring. It expires in 11 days. And so that really limits what Democrats can do to make sure that doesn't expire. They can't vote it through Congress because Republicans don't support it. So that's why I think you're starting to see this pivot now to, well, Omicron spiking. Our first COVID stimulus relief package was pretty popular. You know, I think it's too early to say, do they like completely cut ties with BBB? But considering the antes we saw upped both from Manchin and the White House over this, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the direction Democrats decided to move. It certainly makes a lot more sense than Schumer just insisting they vote on this. I mean, I think the whole way that these bills were built is kind of incoherent on behalf of the White House. If an infrastructure bill... You have climate change provisions, a lot of which are actually kind of green tech and infrastructure. And then you have a bunch of kind of like family-related new entitlement programs. It kind of seems like maybe breaking apart the climate from the family stuff and giving them names that are more descriptive and not this hodgepodge would have been more coherent. Or again, taking the parts of the climate provisions that are infrastructure, green tech, and putting them in the infrastructure bill might have been more coherent potentially. And instead, it kind of seems like, well, you might have X number of Democrats who want the family stuff and not the climate stuff and Y number who want the reverse. So kind of put it all in the hodgepodge and then we can all kind of make everyone agree. But when you have no margin to spare, when you have exactly 50 votes, then that doesn't doesn't really work. The other thing that I think is remarkable is like, why is there so little discussion of having any Republican support? Because the infrastructure bill in the Senate got 69 votes. It passed by a big margin. Maybe there's a way for... Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski, it's a finite list, to support the climate change, green tech spending, and then maybe Manchin supports the family stuff a little bit pared down, and you have different bills that can pass with different groups, potentially. Hmm. Such optimism, Nate. Sounds unlikely. (laughs) (laughs) It does sound unlikely, but Nate's right that infrastructure passed. It does sound unlikely, though. I mean, even the COVID stimulus passed mostly along party lines. Yeah. And it's been interesting, too, like the Republicans who voted in favor of the infrastructure bill, particularly in the House, like Trump sent out, you know, a message to his supporters along the lines of like, let's primary them and get them out of office. And McConnell's been widely criticized for backing the bipartisan bill. So that I think it's just like the dynamics of such. And because Democrats have such a thin margin that they have this one shot at reconciliation, right? Like that's the package. And I think that's why it's such a hodgepodge. But that's why they packed it all together. And it's it's kind of what Nate was saying too, that like, if you just try to do a climate bill, Manchin's not supporting that. And then it doesn't pass the Senate. Now, maybe you can get Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski on board. But if you're in the White House and you're plotting out this strategy, one, there's like how many 
reconciliation chances do you have? Two, it's like, okay, do I want to bet my ability to pass this legislation on winning over a Democrat, be it a very conservative Democrat, or a Republican, be it a more centrist Republican? I'm not sure this was the wrong path. I just think maybe this was never going to work. It might still work, but maybe it was never going to work. The other context here is that Democrats passed a $2 trillion bill at the very beginning of the year along party lines, and maybe that was their shot at doing what they wanted to do. And it was largely, you know, giving a lot of money to states and municipalities, giving stimulus checks to Americans and and more unemployment benefits through the year. And it was none of it was paid for through higher taxes or anything like that. And so I'm curious if kind of that was their opportunity to spend. And that's kind of how they chose to do it. And the infrastructure bill. I mean, they've passed a huge amount of new spending. And they had, you know, the last Democratic administration passed Obamacare, which has remained somewhat intact. But you could also do things to shore up Obamacare, like a public option, for example. It's kind of like they just were like, well, let's think of some other social welfare programs that like nobody is really asking for, you know? It's just kind of weird. And, you know, maybe the infrastructure stuff should have been Biden's signature priority, which he did pass, which is a big accomplishment, which now are undermined, I guess, by this other kind of amorphous thing that, like, it just doesn't make a lot of sense what they're really going for exactly. All right. Dems and Desiree. I'd push back on the idea that no one's asking for some of these programs. I think a lot of people are asking for a lot of these programs. A lot of the programs in the Build Back Better bill would, like, really help West Virginia residents. But as Nate said earlier, people aren't really paying attention to the bill or what's in the bill. That's generally true in politics. Even in Obamacare, you had this thing, which, as Nate said, more people were paying attention to it. But they were like, Obamacare overall was unpopular, but the specific things in it were popular. So even when people pay attention, they're not paying all that much attention. And here, they're not really paying attention. So I don't think the actual programs are what's moving things here. Right. I think maybe the more accurate statement is that when you ask Americans what they're concerned about right now, things like inflation are pretty high up there. And this was never crafted as a bill to address that specific concern. And so maybe people feel like when you ask them, you know, what's wrong? What do you want us to fix? Whatever. These aren't the things that are at the top of their list. There are other things that are at the top of their list that Democrats aren't talking about that much. Democrats could pass Build Back Better and then talk a lot about inflation and do things on inflation. When a bill fails, it's very easy to like write down all the strategic errors people made Mm -hmm. that led it to fail. And some of those will be correct that, you know, they did make mistakes like Actually, what Nate said about the way infrastructure has sort of been subsumed by the coverage of Build Back Better, I think it's totally right. Like, I think the White House kind of screwed itself. You know, Democrats have now passed a huge stimulus in response to COVID and a huge infrastructure package. And we're like a less than a year into Biden's term. That's not bad, right? right and they're closing out the year with the headline Dems and Disarray. Right. Yeah, exactly. But it's but as Nate was getting at, it's kind of all in how you position it and yeah. message it and and yeah. All right. Well let's look back at this year that was. But first people who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories. Follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. A lot happened in 2021, and it can be difficult to remember everything and make sense of what will have long-lasting consequences and what might have been fleeting. So we're going to take some time for the rest of the show to look back at what we learned about American politics in 2021. So from the beginning of the year with a violent attack on the Capitol by Trump supporters, some assumptions about American politics were shaken up. Other events, while significant, may have been predictable or fallen in line with historical trends, like Biden's approval rating falling throughout the year. So let's begin with this. In what ways, if at all, were your assumptions or understandings of American politics challenged this year in 2021? Nate, kick us off. You know, I I don't know kind of, are we dealing this from like January 1st or January 7th or what, right? Or January 5th? 
when you had the Georgia runoff. Well, Nate, when did 2021 begin? <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. We have an answer. Go from January 1st. I'll ask you non-January to, I know January itself was like, we could spend a whole three podcasts just talking about the month of January. So I didn't think it was obvious that Republicans, after Trump lost, would remain so enthralled to him. And the first events of January, the Georgia runoffs where Trump kind of was very half-assed in endorsing the GOP senators and then January 6th are events that the GOP might have an opportunity to say, we're going to rid our hands of Trump. So people who thought, no, they're totally tied to Trump for better or worse, and this is the worst, both electorally and in terms of, you know, the violent attack, right? They're still with them. So I, I thought that was an uncertainty that resolved in a way that I didn't necessarily not expect, but that was a very important development. The other big thing on the Democratic side is I, I frankly think that the public health response to COVID has remained pretty disastrous under the Biden White House, ranging from dragging feet on boosters and dragging feet on new therapies that have yet to be improved to extremely kind of mixed messaging. Kamala Harris saying, well, we didn't expect new variants. No, from the very start of this, any epidemiologist would tell you that like this virus is going to mutate. We're not quite sure in which ways it'll mutate. So, you know, I wasn't surprised because this was kind of baked in last year, but like the evidence now about the consequences for mental health and educational development for younger people from closing schools, you know, that's not Biden's fault per se, but to me, it's been a year to be very disappointed in American elites and American institutions. And I guess I'd just say that I've grown much more pessimistic about the future of America and the competency of its political elites and the ability of the Republican Party to be a functional lowercase democratic party. It's just been kind of a depressing year in that sense. Let's end on that. Nate's not right. wrong. This was the year of the languishing article, you know? It, yeah. So I agree on, on all Nate's points, actually. And like more generally, I think all my answers to these questions are somewhat unsatisfying in that, like, I don't think 2021 was surprising in any way where, like, I thought X would happen and instead Y happened. It was more like I thought we'd get a medium amount of X and we got a lot of X. I thought we'd get, you know what I mean? Like a, a somewhat extreme version of Y and we got a really extreme version of Y. So those were the kind of ways in which the year surprised me. Like, was I surprised by the Republican Party's continued anti-small D Democratic moves? No. Was I surprised by like how forcefully they've pursued that path? Yeah, a little bit. Was I surprised they sought to undermine the 2020 election? Again, in 2021, no. Was I surprised they like quite literally tried to overturn it? Yeah, a little bit. That was surprising. A little bit. Wait, I was, I was actually <laughs> full on surprised yeah. by January. Like, I was shocked by January sixth. No, that guy's. That was sar- that was that was sarcasm. Yes, the I personally was shocked. <laughs> no, no, no. That's what I'm saying. Is like the themes, like of January sixth in particular. The themes were not surprising. The event itself was shocking, and the swiftness with which the Republican Party moved to realign itself with Trump after like two days of wobbling. That was surprising. Yeah. The doorbell that just rang in the background, that was surprising. <laughs> and then on COVID, I, I agree with Nate that like, you always knew variants were a possibility. I think like early on in this pandemic, even we published an article, I think it was by Maggie maybe, that was like, sort of about how like COVID could just become kind of like the flu where we're sort of endlessly battling it. But just emotionally, I guess I didn't expect to still be grappling with it so much. Yeah. I echo a lot of what both Nate and Micah said, but, you know, I have this specific memory of reading this article from Emily Badger at the Upshot at the New York Times. And to be clear, I really admire her work, but it was a piece done in November of 2020 towards the end. And it was saying how, you know, upwards of 70% 
80% of Republicans were saying in surveys that they didn't think Biden had won. But what she was arguing that was taking this at face value was complicated because research has shown that answers that partisans give on the left and the right don't always match what they reflect to know as fact, but rather what they wish were true or what they think they should say. And I remember reading that and being like, ah, oh, I wish we had done that. That was so smart. You know, it's this concept of partisan cheerleading. But then January 6th happened, right? And that was not partisan cheerleading. That was an attack on our democracy. And it is time and time again, real evidence that at least some Republicans don't think Biden won. And that is something I think is new in our politics that I had not fully understood the ramifications of that and what that means as a politics site covering democracy, the parties now, and doing it in a way that is still fair and objective to the extent that objective is something you strive for. But when a party is being full-fledged anti-democratic, how do you cover that and do that in a way that helps people understand the issue and isn't sanctimonious, which I think is hard for a lot of that coverage because the stakes are so big here. And I don't think I fully appreciated that moving into this year. There's a whole other point about how people who excoriate the media for their coverage of GOP attacks on democracy kind of tend to be sanctimonious and like media sanctimonious. And that's like the exact least desirable attribute if you want to persuade people that you're right. I've been actually surprised to some degree by what I think of as like the lack of urgency among Democrats to actually take substantive steps to reduce threats to democracy. Obviously, a lot of Democratic lawyers fighting court battles, but like, you know, the focus on this very half-assed focus on voting rights, which is probably not as big an immediate threat as like the fact that an election result might not be certified if it comes down to Wisconsin or Georgia or something, for example. You know, the fact that they kind of trotted out H.R. 1, a bill that was designed before the 2020 election, didn't really make any concrete effort to pass it. You know, I mean, if you kind of read the room, and the, and the fact that, frankly, Democratic elites and activists are very concerned about threats to democracy, but, like, they're also concerned about 55 other things, about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial and about Joe Manchin and Build Back Better and whatever else, right? And, like, there's not a lot of, like, actual focus on it. I think I'm kind of stealing this from like a Matt Iglesias article recently, but if you actually like look how people are behaving, they're not behaving as though the threat to democracy is that urgent. They aren't stopping everything in their tracks and saying, this is the one thing we have to focus on. We passed infrastructure, now it's, you know, pressure Joe Manchin on the filibuster on voting rights or something, or the John Lewis bill, whatever else. It's, it's just kind of been, again, just to the point that I kind of think America's best days are not coming from the public sphere, at least, right? It's kind of been not surprising so much as like, like Micah was saying earlier, kind of within the range of reasonable expectations, but toward the more disappointing end. So I want to ask a different question, which is not so much what might have surprised you, but what you think was actually, you know, maybe was one thing or a couple things, the most significant political events of the year in the sense that they will have implications beyond 2021. We will be talking about them in the fall of 2022 or their knock-on effects. Because especially if you follow the news media pretty diligently, just things happen at a pace that you lose control over. Reviewing all the different things that happened this year, you know, preparing for this segment, they're just like, I don't remember this, I don't remember that, that happened. Uh, you know, like I had no recollection that on June 17th, the Supreme Court upheld the Affordable Care Act Yet again, after, you know, all of the arguments during Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings that she might strike it down and all that, you know, that was just, at this point, didn't even remember it. So what do you think, and maybe I know January is a packed month, but January and beyond, what do you think will have implications going forward? I definitely think you have to start with, and maybe let's couple them together, like January 6th and then the failure of the second Trump impeachment. Yeah. Because that was a moment where all our cynicism about the Republican Party notwithstanding, that really was a moment where it seemed possible there could be a break or, you know, a correction of some sort. And there wasn't. And that was followed by lots of laws limiting access to the vote, lots of laws 
sort of meddling with county election boards and local election officials and, and kind of who has power there. And then lots of polling showing that the vast majority of Republicans now think that Biden didn't win free and fairly, which which he did. So I think you have to start there. The other one that I would put first is the Texas abortion bill. Not only because there's a good chance that's going to lead to Roe being overturned. Well, couldn't that just be the Mississippi case? But the reason I would sing out the Texas one in particular is this model of trying to get around the Supreme Court that the Texas law followed, which is, look, and I'm not like a legal expert, so I might butcher this, but it's basically like making everyone in the country a cop, basically, and everybody can sue everybody else. That model, if it works with the Supreme Court, could have far-reaching consequences in terms of it being mirrored. And we're already seeing like DeSantis in Florida essentially using that model on like CRT in schools. Well, and Newsom in California saying they want to use it on guns, right? Like it would just turn red and blue states into absolute, like all out, exactly. all of our, you know, dream, most partisan, most controversial legislation, we can pursue it. Yeah. All right. So I think Sarah and Nate, your jobs are a little bit harder now. So I'm going to ask you to not name the things that Micah has already named, but in terms of most important things in, in 2021 politics, what do you think? I won't belabor it then, but when Micah was starting with the impeachment trial, I think that just echoes what Nate had been saying about the lack of urgency. It just very quickly became obvious that this was going to be politics as usual in the face of something that was hardly anything but unusual. But setting that aside, you know, I think something else that was historic for this year and does have lasting repercussions is right before January 6th, or actually, I guess we found out that Ossoff won on January 6th, but the fact that two Democratic senators won the runoffs in Georgia. You know, that was a state that for the first time in decades had voted blue in the presidential election. And then here in a quote unquote off year, and I think it underscored the abnormality of which Trump was refusing to concede. That was when, you know, that Washington Post article had come out about him trying to pressure the Secretary of State in Georgia to overturn the election results. What we saw, this was actually Dan Hopkins and a, one of his colleagues wrote a piece recently for 538. And when they were unpacking why things happened the way they did in Georgia. It was depressed Republican turnout, which is kind of the opposite of what you expect in a traditional kind of midterm environment. And I realize 2021 is not 2022. But I think there's kind of this question, granted, we've been debating it since 2016, but to what extent the U.S. is undergoing a realignment, a recalibration, whatever term you want to call it. But I think we're seeing shifts in the electorate where states like Georgia might increasingly move towards Democrats, where maybe parts of the Midwest are Republican strongholds now. I mean, we'll continue to see with elections, but that was a big one that I think kind of speaks to changing dynamics in our electoral politics. Well, and massively changed everything that happened in Washington this year and exactly, that will happen in Washington right. next year, too. We wouldn't be talking about Joe Manchin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's a good one. Nate? People have mentioned most of the obvious ones, so I'll endorse those. I do think the continued evidence of the migration of Hispanic voters away from Joe Biden and Democrats is very significant as far as the political coalitions that Democrats thought they were building and their kind of overall like philosophy of government. Um, that's the only one I had to add. If you want like a very Nate aside, 2021 mm. is the year where cryptocurrency became a kind of major topic of conversation. Nate. <laughs> Nate. But no, because like this is like – No, that's true actually. We love when you play into stereotypes. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, but like this is something that's going to I think start to potentially have political implications. So 43% of men aged 18 to 29, according to Pew – have invested or traded in cryptocurrency as of September of this year. It's becoming like something that could start to have some reverberations on politics. I don't know in which way it would affect politics. But you talk about things that fly under the radar that in the future you might look back and say this was important. At some point, if there continues to be more investment in crypto, it becomes a major asset class at the very least, and that begins to have economic and political implications. This is kind of like a, a year for that, that you know, probably in 2022 – if the world doesn't blow up, which it probably will, there'll be some crypto, some coin will be like the time person of the year or something like that, right? But really it's kind of <laughs> kind of this year where the inflection point I think actually occurred. 
But that's like the sixth best answer because like Sarah and Micah <laughs> took all the, the five best answers. No, I think you're right. And I've heard lawmakers, particularly younger lawmakers, start talking more and more about it in a way that's not just like, oh, that's a thing, but talking about how to regulate it. You hear mayors around the country talking about like how we're going to be the next, Miami's going to be the next crypto capital, but Eric Adams want to re- wants to receive his salary or at least the first three months in crypto and like wants to make New York the crypto cap, blah, 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 blah. This is the year that politicians started taking it seriously, I think. Yeah, I was trying to refresh my memory. The GameStop stuff, that was this year, right? Like early January. Yeah. yeah. This was the year was I was like, oh, I have to like kind of look into this now and, and understand it, which I had been resisting doing for a long time. Let me throw another one out there and see what you guys think. What about just like inflation? Yes, I have that on the list. So what is it? November, annual inflation reaches 6.8%, the highest rate in nearly 40 years. I, th- I think that's a good one. There is some argument right now that inflation is mostly being caused by pandemic stuff. And so as that eases, so will inflation. So maybe we'll look back and be like, oh, that was not a long-term problem. But I, I don't know. I feel like maybe uh, we have overlooked the other thing that really is impactful in people's day-to-day lives, which is is COVID. Yeah, 800,000 people. 800,000 people. We said covid Okay, but like also the effect it has on people's mindsets and mentalities mm-hmm. and the effect it has on people's yeah. career planning, whether it's between white-collar professionals still working remotely all the time or people. But like I think people have reoriented their attitude toward work. I hate the term work-life balance. I think it's a terrible term. But, you know, people are reconsidering how they want to like engage with their professions. And I think that's pretty significant too. Yeah, in all the kind of like levels of the economy, not just, you know, the white collar professional class, but of course, some of the the most job turnover is at the lower wage end of the spectrum. Yeah, that's significant, I think. It may have long-term reverberations. I will say, going back to like where we started this, which was like what was surprising, the comparison I would make is like in the run-up to the 2016 election, where we were sort of writing all these articles saying, Trump has a path here. This is a real possibility. And our forecast obviously showed it as a real possibility. And literally, I was editing articles that were like, here's how Trump can win. Yes, Trump has a path. And then I was still completely shocked when he won. In the same way, I'm maybe not shocked is too strong a word, but I have been surprised by just how much COVID has continued to to affect everything. I mean, I think it's like, in so many ways, really politically, health-wise, 2021 just feels like a continuation of 2020. And that's one of the big ones. Yeah, I'm interested to see how COVID continues to shape politics. I feel like 2021 was a year during which the politics of COVID became a lot more complicated. In 2020, it was very much Democrats are significantly more COVID cautious and their argument against Trump, their campaign in 2020 was a large part that he wasn't being responsive to the pandemic. But when you're no longer just arguing against things Trump is doing and you have to create your own path forward in which you balance normalcy with caution, things got messy. And like across the political spectrum have seen people be driven by their opinions about COVID and how we should respond in ways that don't really match with their politics. And that seemed very interesting to me. And I think it will, you know, I thought it might have subsided by the end of 2021, but it's very clear that one of the biggest political issues at the beginning of 2022 is going to be how we respond to this new wave of the Omicron variant and like who's had it, who still wants to be cautious, who, you know, is still resisting vaccination, all kinds of things I think are still going to be tense. I mean, part of it is people withdrawing and isolating more into their own spaces. Maybe this is tied to like the disapproval of Biden among younger voters potentially, but like People just can't get agree can't agree on very much, and they have ways to disengage and disconnect. Sometimes by themselves, sometimes with other groups of people who are like minded, that are kind of orthogonal to like the political system. People may just start to tune politics out, which means people who are engaged in politics are less representative, and that has a lot of negative consequences. I think. But we've had all these re- elections with record high turnout. That's fair. That's fair. The one point I just want to like emphasize that Galen was making, because I think this is one of the big question marks going into 2022, is what effect does politics have on COVID and what effect does COVID have on politics, right? Because like so far, politics have had a huge effect 
on the way this pandemic has played out, right? It's affected whether people have gotten vaccines or not. It's affected like all the mandate stuff. It's affected, you know, masking, all, all that kind of stuff. But I think as Galen was saying, in 2021, it became where the political line is on certain behaviors became less clear. Like 2020, if I were to say, hey, it's April 2020, I'm going to have a huge party with 500 people in an indoor gymnasium. You would say, that's a bad idea. That's really stupid. But the longer this goes on, the harder it is to keep pushing off major life things. How long do you not visit your parents or in-laws for? How long do you delay a wedding? Like I know a lot of people who delayed a wedding and then eventually got married. So it's like, it just becomes less clear kind of where the politics are on COVID and therefore where COVID is on politics. I think that makes sense. I think it has become frustrated across political lines too, because people who want to go out and do things and not be cautious anymore might not necessarily be all Republicans and people who want to be more cautious and make sure everyone's vaccinated around them might not necessarily be all Democrats. The customer of the average Atlantic article about like, should I cancel my birthday party, is not like a normal person. And even most people who are liberals kind of got back to normal at some point in 2021. Whether it's good or bad, I don't know. But like, don't take neurotic, college-educated people in big cities who write for a living to be indicative of kind of how the average American's living. It's hard, though. I mean, we should be able to have a world where, like, that kind of article can exist and another one where somebody is more flexible on how they move and navigate in the world can coexist and not gaslight the other. I don't think that's possible in our current environment. But I do think we have to be careful with some of the anxieties we see manifested in people because 800,000 people have died who didn't need to die. And I think that has manifested in different ways for people and how they react to the coronavirus. And some of it doesn't seem rational to you or I, but I think it just complicates how people are kind of navigating all this. And I don't, I wish we could have more productive conversations around it that weren't meant to like alienate certain swaths. That's a thing and why I was going to push back, Nate, a little bit on like the use of the word neurotic, because I, like, I don't think it is neurotic. Like, I think there are a million reasons why people are or are not anxious about aspects of the coronavirus. And it's like, you know, at various points, sometimes, like I said early on, it was fairly simple to know what to do or not to do in some cases. But, uh, you know, as time goes on, it gets more and more complicated knowing like, is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? It gets more and more personal, right? It's what makes sense for you and, and your life circumstances. And so to Sarah's point, like in some way, I wish we could have more of those. I don't know exactly what article you're referring to, but like more of those discussions of, hey, is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? But obviously in a, in a more rational understanding way than we have them now. It quickly turns into like, you're an idiot, you're callous, oh, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Right. I mean, look, I think that most people have realized at some point that life must go on. Because even though 800,000 people have died, you can't just put your life on hold indefinitely. Some people were like that from the start. Some people were like that once they got vaccinated at different times, right? But the number of people who are have not realized that is relatively small and are overrepresented in, I think, the target audience for The Atlantic or 538 or whatever. Maybe it's good, maybe maybe it's bad, but, like, most people are not willing to, like, micromanage risk so much necessarily. The polling says that 75% of Americans at least tell pollsters they're living lives back to normal. I think part of it, though, I'm not trying to downplay any of the neuroses or anxieties people have. But, you know, the ways in which society has gone back to normal, whether that's going to a sporting event, eating out at a restaurant, schools are now mostly reopened. I think there might be something where, like, people don't want to go back to the office. And that's playing out in some of this, too, yeah. in very complicated I want to go ways. back to the office. No, I know. I know. And, like, I think, you know, a lot of young people, you know, to return back to the economist poll, also really want to 
go back to the office, right? Because like your first job remote, it's just, it's not the same, right? You don't get to overhear conversations, ask a colleague a question, have them walk you through it, et cetera. But it is, I've been kind of struck by that disconnect where it's like some people have moved fully back to normal, except when it comes to this idea of going back to the office. And I think that's just playing out now in really complicated ways where it's like Omicron spreading, but like restaurants aren't shutting down, but offices are now like, okay, you don't have to come back in. And I think there's kind of this sigh of relief from at least a good section of the population. Not Galen. Not Galen though, to be clear. I love you guys. I want to see you every day. Uh, I think we have made it clear from the direction this conversation has gone in that the politics of COVID are not going away and they're going to endure into 2022. Like, honestly, hopefully not beyond, but at this point, who knows? We've also mentioned lots of other things that happened in 2021 that will continue to shape our lives going forward. I will say we're going to have another kind of year-end wrap that's going to be a little more lively, more of a game, maybe a little more lighthearted than this conversation was next week. So stick with us. It's not all doom and gloom from here, but I think we're going to leave it there for today. So thank you, Nate, Sarah, and Micah. Thank you. Thanks, Gail. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. And have a happy holiday. I will see you back here uh, next Monday, although that'll be pre-recorded. So I actually already know that next week's podcast is more fun because it's already been recorded. Anyway, my name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigary Curtis is on audio editing. And Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.